Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and today I'm speaking to Dr. Andrew Fenter, CEO of Africa Foundation. The last time I spoke to Andrew was only a couple of months after he took over the leadership of Africa Foundation in November 2020, when we spoke about what he was hoping to achieve and the direction that he wanted to take the organization in. Today we will mark the 30th anniversary year of Africa Foundation by looking back over key achievements and learnings, as well as speaking about the exciting new developments that are currently taking place. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on to chat to us again. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here and uh, super excited to share um, some insights into this amazing organization, Africa Foundation. It's, it's actually a very, very exciting time for Africa Foundation right now, as you are celebrating the 30th anniversary this year. So obviously a really great time to to look back and also look forward. And I believe that's something that you've been doing quite a lot of. Just to kick off the conversation, can you talk about both the achievements over the past 30 years that you're particularly proud of, as well as the learnings that you're looking to take ahead as you plan for the future of, of Africa Foundation? Sure. So, you know, I have the privilege of being young in the foundation. So I'm coming up on my second year. And linked to that, I've also been able to visit most of the communities that the foundation has established a presence in together with and beyond over the past 30 years. And so I'm bringing new lenses to look at it, but at the same time, I'm able to celebrate the incredible successes and achievements because I see them for the first time. I'm not, I don't have this vested legacy and, and I'm not carrying any um, pain around, um, you know, projects that didn't work or the successful ones. So I mean, I think to start off, we, we really need to celebrate the fact that 30 years later, Africa Foundation is still going strong and that the partnership and relationship with that beyond is still going strong. And if anything is, is expanding all the time, that's an amazing achievement. 30 years, there's not too many well-intended, uh, development-focused, conservation-focused initiatives out there that have survived for 30 years. So that's a massive achievement. And it really talks to the testimony of the relationship between and beyond an Africa Foundation. The second key insight, though, is the legacy on the ground. And 30-odd you know, years ago, this vision was born working with the Makasa community as a priority community, together with Ngobagazi way back then. Today, that vision has been translated into impact on the ground in over 70 communities across six countries, and it's tangible. When you visit those communities, you feel it. There is absolutely no doubt that there is a legacy impact, and you feel it in the systemic change and support over multiple years. I'm, I'm constantly amazed, particularly when I visit some of the schools and the clinics that we've supported and, and try to get my head around how is it possible that so much has been done. And, and what that talks to is small bites at multiple sites every year. 
and how one classroom translated into two, into four, into eight, into an admin center, into a dormitory, into a kitchen, into a hall, how a community's request for support around primary health care translates from initially a small little sort of nurse's office to a fully functional clinic and doctors and nurses accommodation. You see that. It's made a, a massive difference. And, and, and everywhere I go, I, I, I hear that from our partners. And it's not, the, it's not an ins, insincere donor thank you. you know, it's not because I'm arrived there and the community are lined up to make sure that they you know, <laughs> acknowledge the donors arriving. It is just there. You feel it through. The, the second piece, uh, sorry, the third piece around that impact is then the shift in those communities over the years. A lot of the foresight at the beginning of the journey, I would like to believe, was uh, anchored in two key insights. One, that Africa Foundation and beyond need to work with their community partners and their engagement needs to be led by those partners. So rather than arriving with our own development model, we, we need to listen, learn, shape and respond, which I, I really think the foundation has done. But the second insight linked to that was that core investments in um, improved education facilities, improved health facilities, are going to unlock the potential of those communities. And so they're worthwhile doing. And the reason I say that is that there is a, a general negative view around investing in social infrastructure within the greater donor community and government. There's sort of donor fatigue. And it's uh, often, yes, yeah, so how many more schools are we going to build? How many more clinics? And then I go into our communities and I see the impact that the schools we've helped establish and the clinics we've helped establish has made. And the fundamental impact that it's made is it's helping communities transition from being largely unhealthy, illiterate, and innumerate to being able to engage in a modern society environment. That, that shift in literacy and numeracy and just general community health is transformational. The foundation that flows with that is there. The other strong legacy impact is around CLEF, so our Community Leaders Education Fund, where we have over a 1,000 students that we've supported. Uh, this year, I think we are supporting around about 170 that have got the opportunity to go to university, complete degrees, and those, and, you know, some diplomas, but their qualifications range from focused social service type um, engagements, doctors, uh, doctors, nurses, teachers, lawyers, through to include engineers, environmentalists, and even, you know, the, the odd exception who is setting the world alight as an astrophysicist. You, that talent, that talent is nascent talent, and it sits in communities across the world. And it's not unlocked because the socioeconomic circumstances that, that talents parents and support networks find themselves in mean that it just doesn't get realized. And so CLEF has been transformational in that sense because it has provided a pathway from deep poverty to realizing potential. And, and 
what we're seeing more and more is that gener- you know, the, the generations of CLEF graduates starting to invest back in their communities and accelerating the development of their communities, inspiring the next generation of students. That, so, that, that, you know, you, you start adding those pieces together and just to focus around education, health uh, over the last majority of the last 30 years is it's an amazing uh, impact. And of course, then you start layering on all the rest that Africa Foundation is trying to do. And you, you get a real sense that this notion of a deep impact uh, relationship is really starting to shape. So obviously a really, really great legacy and a very solid foundation that's been built over 30 years. Yeah, and I think that that foundation is worth emphasizing. Um, and it talks back to the, the reality that communities that we spent decades working with are engaging as equals. They're no longer battling to read a document. They're no longer battling to understand English. Um, they're no longer not arriving because they're simply too sick. They're engaging as peers. And, and on occasion, that's challenging because now all of a sudden it's like the, the sort of beneficial relationship that we've had on occasion has been transformed into a genuinely a relationship of equals. But my goodness, that's exciting. And, and the implications for the next 30 years are dramatic because there are some partnerships that are going to evolve out of these relationships that will be literally benchmarked, will change the face of community-based conservation globally. That's a really amazing concept to face. But equally, I'm sure that it comes with its with some of its challenges. And, you know, you've spoken a lot about the difference in the in the relationship and the developing relationship between Africa foundations and the communities it works with. You know, given that that constantly shifting relationship, are there some aspects that you look at and you say, okay, well, you know, they've they've worked for us incredibly well over the past 30 years, but we need to start changing or growing or, you know, working working on them as our situation changes? There are plenty of examples of projects that haven't worked. Um, and there's the, the, the anchor to that, uh, usually one or two causes. So either it was a clever idea, conceptualized outside the community, parachuted in and failed because there just wasn't um, – a local buy-in to it. And we haven't had too many of those, but we, you know, you get tempted because you'll have a donor that has this, they do X, that's what they want to do. And and you're going, well, you know, it's it's a donor that wants to work with us, let's make it happen. And then it and it doesn't work well. Had a few of those. The the other piece that has been really it's been an important learning for us is to stick to our process. Uh, we talk internally about our methodology. Um, and at the heart of the methodology is a embedded, consultative, and community-led approach. And that takes time. And often you feel the pressure to short-circuit that. And, and more often than not, when you short-circuit that and you try and accelerate a project because the committee process is just taking too long, um, you run into challenges downstream. So there's a fine line there. Um, what we are finding is as, as the embedded impact of improved education kicks in, so the ability of community members to engage in a consultative process improves. And so, you know, the, the, the pace of development speeds up. 
But we do need to remind ourselves that particularly where we work with new communities or communities that we have a young relationship with, that you need to start the journey well. Um, and so you simply put, you take communities like Makasa and Mobagas, where we've worked with them for 30 years, the, the development pace is fast. And the amount of work we're doing there is dramatic and it's well-founded and it's working and, and it's because the partnership has evolved to that point. Whereas you go to a community like Kotzebecha on the edge of Lakavanga Delta, where we're still in very early stages, there really is a strong focus on getting the, the basics right so that in time you can accelerate process here. Yeah. I think that that's the, the key learnings. Um, the other point is that we have a gradient of engagement. So 70 communities. There's some communities there where we, we're doing the first generation projects, which are generally um, education and or um, health care or sometimes some water because those are the immediate pressing priorities that you have from those communities. But when you move to the other end of the gradient where we have worked on those for multiple years, we, we've moving quite quickly into another to the next layers, still focusing on improved education and health, but in addition to that, rapidly uh, building programs around the econ- economy of those communities. We, we refer to the hustle economy in our environment, which is the predominant economy there, but it's the argument is strengthen the local economy and let's work with the communities to do that. And then the big nightmare we all face, which is the... Uh, the very scary rate of youth unemployment uh, in South Africa and across the region. And the reality that if we don't deal with that, we have a, we have a, you know, the notional ticking time bomb that is sitting there and it, and it, and it expresses itself in um, unrest. And we've seen that in South Africa, we've seen youth in South Africa rise up. They, they're disgruntled. They have no hope. And so in the communities we work in in South Africa, we have a a strong focus then also on um, improving the employability of youth. You see the impact of that because a few years investment in individuals translates generally into either solid employment for those individuals or their development of their own micro-enterprise opportunities. So you've got the shift. and, And I think that that's the big change coming through Africa Foundation at the moment. I have no idea what it's going to be in another 30 years, but right now we're on that in that growth in activity phase, which, which responds to the next set of needs coming out of communities. Yeah. Okay, so, you, you know, as you've just mentioned, there is a quite a lot of change happening in, in Africa Foundation right now. And I think the picture that you're looking at right now is very, very different to when we spoke, which was probably about 15 months ago or so. And... Um, that was sort of right after the peak of of COVID. And I think Africa Foundation was at a very pivotal point there at that stage. You you were about to embark on a a number of different projects, but you were still assessing the long-term impact of of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about how things have taken shape since then and whether it's gone the way that you've expected Um, and the kind of changes that you've had to make to adjust to the sort of the post-COVID world as it is? Reflecting on, so there's two pieces to this. So a a lot has happened (laughs) in the life of Africa Foundation over the last um, last year, last 15 months. 
Um, and, then, and then there has been the sort of tail end of COVID. So Africa Foundation itself, one was played a, a really critical role in our um, community partners during the COVID period. The, the initial uh, response, largely led by um, the Ambion shareholders and supported by them, um, providing a mix of uh, public health support, washing stations, sanitizer, masks, and then um, the food parcel for all across the communities was, was phenomenal. And when combined, and I need to emphasize this, combined with the Ambion policy of not retrenching staff, the, you, you add those two together in our partner communities and there is little doubt, no doubt at all, that those communities survived COVID better than many others. And you hear that, you hear those stories on the ground, the deep appreciation that is expressed within those communities for the um, empathetic response demonstrated by you know, their partners and beyond an Africa Foundation. That was really the intense uh, space that we were in at the peak of COVID. As COVID started normalizing for us, because that's where it is, it's still there, but it's now just something it's, that's, that's normal in our lives. Our focus was on, on getting back on track because we diverted. And so actually relatively quickly, I mean, a year ago already, we had started focusing on delivery of our um, pipeline projects and then shaping the next, um, the next set of interventions. And so our transition um, won back to Africa Foundation Normal and then the growth of that has been very quick in that period and has felt across um, all our footprints. Linked to that, we, we've seen a significant growth in the amount of funding that we're able to raise. Over a two-year period, we'll probably double the amount of funding and potentially a bit more. And, and that reflects two things. So it reflects... One, the sort of global recovery, economic recovery, allowing for more funding to be available for environmental and socially focused interventions. A lot of our work over the last year was to build our capacity to access that. So we've really focused on building a team that um, are increasingly becoming really strong at delivery, reporting, financial management, all the, the basic essentials that we need to get right if we're going to secure the sort of funding resources we aspire to. So that is, that is tangible, it's noticeable. And then we've established a number of new partnerships um, around, in particular in South Africa, around our hustle economy and our Yes for Youth partnerships, which have had a dramatic impact on the scale of what we do in the 27 communities we're working in South Africa. So Africa Foundation is moving. And it is, it is growing its impact dramatically. For me, the personal highlight in there is the um, changing team dynamic. And we've been privileged to be able to recruit a number of new team members and, and explicitly there to focus on tapping into the next generation's 
um, enthusiasm and precocious talent. And so the face of Africa Foundation is changing dramatically. And, and the face really is a, a group of 30 to 40 year old, um, a few younger than that, professionals, young professionals coming through um, who are well-educated, who are ambitious and who share this most incredible commitment to giving back, to making a difference. And so the, and particularly, you, you particularly feel this at the moment in South Africa, um, the other regions will follow, but in South Africa, whether you go to Amunyawana cluster, whether you go to the Greater Kruger, Sabi Sands and Gala cluster, or you go to um, Batlier House in Johannesburg, um, you feel it. You, you're meeting um, young individuals who I find at times totally intimidating because of their intellect, um, at the same time totally inspirational for their commitment and passion. And so that shift is the key shift in this last year, uh, whilst we've brought in new projects and programs. But that shift is going to translate into something magical in the next five years. We, we're building a talent factory is the way I see it. Um, you know, and, and as I say, there's, there's, there's magic on the horizon. And I, I don't know what that is. I can't tell you what it's looking like, but I can tell you there's magic on the horizon. When I see yeah, I mean, it's just these bright, young, ambitious, competent minds getting together and being given this space because for many of them, their frustration is they haven't been given the gap. Society hasn't allowed them to be, to, to realize their potential. And that's what we are focused on doing. Um, Andrew, you, you, you briefly mentioned a little bit earlier the, the huge threat of youth unemployment and, and the challenges that that brings. And I know that you've been very busy in the past year or so with a lot of pro programs and, and projects. You mentioned Yes for Youth very briefly as well. Um, are you able to maybe give us a quick update about um, some of the initiatives that you've been engaged in to help actually deal with that threat of, of unemployment among the youth? Sure. So, I'm going to talk to three um, initiatives that are coming together. So in South Africa, we have a hustle economy program that is, um, is really starting to gain momentum. We have our Yes for Youth partnership. And then across Southern Africa and East Africa, we're putting in a really interesting community and conservation ranger model. So starting off with hustle economy, the, the focus there is on um, – young, aspirant, and emerging micro-entrepreneurs within our communities. Um, and these will be individuals that have a, a, a core desire to be businessmen or women. And they're starting off often on the street corner selling sweets or um, chips or else they've started producing clothes or they're a, you know, they've got a little barber shop but they are right at that early stage of learning what it is to um, be an entrepreneur. So we started Hus the Hustle Economy program um, in April last year, and uh, it has grown rapidly since then. Um, we currently have over 400 micro-enterprises that we're working in, um, and we're hoping to grow that to a total impact by the end of 
um, by December 2023 of around about 1,500 small businesses. And now the key metric that we're looking at there is to work with those businesses and to help them improve their take-home, their profit from um, their starting point, which is usually in, and you know, it's in a region of about a thousand rand, so it's light, less than the upper poverty level in South Africa, and to take it to the point where they are consistently earning well in excess of the upper poverty level, which is just over a thousand three hundred rand, but more importantly, in excess of the minimum wage, which sits at four thousand rand. So. Our success factor there would be get to get the point where the businesses are these these hustlepreneurs are successful, they're sustainable, they are growing month on month, and they are at an individual level earning um, an income that um, is well in excess of the minimum wage. Super excited to see the growth. Um, we've we've been blessed by the support we've received for that through um, the Alan Gray. Orbis Foundation and through uh, Yellowwood Social Investment and recently brought on Enterprise Development Trust and everything crossed, we're going to bring in a nice jobs fund that will underwrite it. So it's building a nice, a a great network of visionary um, partners who don't see themselves as donors, they see themselves as partners, equally vested in the success of these hustlepreneurs. The, the second program has been our partnership with Yes for Youth. So Yes for Youth is, is just an amazing um, program. It is a South African-born initiative. It was born out of a partnership established between the South African government and um, South African business about five years ago now, recognizing that um, youth unemployment was probably the single biggest development challenge we have in South Africa. And then more importantly in there, recognizing that one of the key constraints is that um, youth are not work ready uh, when they leave school. And so many individuals who've got potential are leaving school, applying for jobs, failing at the interview level or failing in their first couple of months at work because they simply, they've no idea how to (laughs) behave in that environment. So Yes for Youth is a work placement model, um, and what they do is they uh, join the dots between businesses interested in supporting the development of young South Africans, and then um, organizations like ourselves and many others that are able to provide a, a work placement opportunity. Over the last nine months, um, we've really, you know, we've been blessed by the support that we've got starting off with Ford Motor Corporation adopting us, um, recently then Stuart Cole, and uh, our latest partner is Nedbank. Um, What that has meant is that we currently have um, nearly 500 youth from the communities, our partner communities, embedded in work placements. Majority of those are work placements that we've created through our programs, but there's also a very important block of youth that are being hosted by and beyond through the lodges and then slowly um, at Batlier House itself. This is likely to be something that we do for the next 10 years, um, and we're hoping that we'll be able to host 500 to 1,000 youth a year um, annually that join us, 
learn from us, learn from our teams, make a massive contribution to our impact, and then graduate from their relationship with us and go on to find um, work off the skills that they developed in that process. It, it's transformational for the youth, um, and critically, though, it's transformational um, for Africa Foundation and our program growth. And then the, the third um, initiative is our community and conservation ranger model, which we piloted initially um, off the back of our um, NIMBA Atoll project, where through o, uh, Oceans Without Borders, we'd started working at NIMBA. We'd realized that there was a significant um, health challenge there with less than the reef, less than 5% of the reef being healthy. Um, that led to us recruiting a small team, three individuals from the communities we were working with, taking that team through a process where they learned to dive. Then they learned how to establish a coral farm, and now they're learning how to um, use the coral propagator through that farm to plant it out in restoration work. Um, we also were able to um, recruit a, an amazing young marine scientist there, Nancy Raba, who's based on the atoll. Now that has catalyzed a model that we're now rolling elsewhere. So the um, NEMBA Community and Conservation Ranger team who today run a farm, they run a coral farm underwater. It's amazing. You go there, they, they spend three to four days uh, uh, a week literally underwater looking after their coral and then they're starting to plant those out to um, a similar project um, of the um, our uh, Benguera footprint um, working into the greater Bazaruta archipelago which we anticipate is going to grow rapidly over the next couple of years um, supporting community and conservation ranger teams throughout the archipelago and possibly supporting the implementation of a hustle type model in that environment as well. At the moment, we have four uh, ranges based there. We've just catalyzed a uh, community and conservation ranger team off the back of Quechua um, and Nyakwiri Forest, um, just on the edge of the Masamora, um, where there are three rangers currently being established, uh, being recruited. They will work under the leadership of Simon Saitoti, our amazing project officer there. Um, establishing a nursery and um, putting in place a wildlife monitoring program in the forest, including a focus on pangolin, and then getting to the point where they're growing, hopefully, <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of indigenous trees that will be used to re-establish and revitalize the query forest. We're recruiting two rangers at the moment um, just south of Lake Manyara, um, so off the back of uh, Tree Lodge, in the Mallorca and Moya communities. And there we've partnered with um, Tawa, which is the uh, Tanzanian Wildlife Authority around the implementation of their Mali High um, Environmental Education Program into those schools. And then the next ranger project that we are hoping and anticipating we'll be able to kick off in a month or so is in Botswana with the Tutsubeka and Kokomoka communities um, with a focus on the Okavanga Delta. So we're slowly building these teams across all our footprints. Um, I anticipate we'll get to a point where every site has a team of youth drawn from the local community, employed uh, as community and conservation rangers, 
and working on a wide range from, you know, growing and planting our coral to restoring forests to monitoring turtles to dealing with um, human wildlife conflicts, elephants and destroying crops. So a very exciting uh, momentum build there as well. Well, you say, you know, slowly growing the, growing the teams, but I think that's an incredible amount of progress in, you know, pretty much, a, you know, what is quite a short period of time. It's, it's really amazing. Oh, no, and, you know, the, the, the point for me is the talents there. So our opportunity is to unlock, support and nurture that talent. And, and, and when, you, when you start that journey and you see it go, um, you know, our next challenge is to keep up with it <laughs> and to make sure that we can continue feeding and supporting. And, uh, I mean, what a privilege to be able to do that. Andrew, something else that you mentioned um, that was quite high on your agenda the last time we spoke um, was carbon uh, reduction projects and how you could use those to generate economic benefits for rural communities. Is that something that you've been able to tackle in the past year or, or year and a half? And have you had any success in this regard? So um, it's still a priority, a definitive priority. The, the two sites that we focused on at the moment are around um, a, a community carbon intervention. One is the Nyakweri Forest uh, Project up in um, Kenya. Um, the... the the community, the Kimi Tent um, community, are the custodians of a large piece of Nyakweri forest. 60% of that forest has been cleared in the last 20 years for charcoal. Um, the community have, re- have recognized that this is a problem, it's not sustainable. They've responded by establishing a conservation trust. And we're now working with them to see whether we can, one, slow, then stop, the rate of deforestation through an education and awareness process and then reverse it through a restoration process. So that project is just about to start um, working with many, many partners who are equally concerned about it up there. Um, and then the second site is around the Munyawana. And this project is starting to come together. It's um, super exciting. Um, you know, the Munyawana represents in many ways the foundation stone for um, and beyond an Africa foundation. It's where the vision was born um, around Pinda and it's grown from the original Pinda uh, vision through to a really strong model with over 30,000 hectares of land consolidated. Um, Critically important though is that the majority of that land has been restituted um, at the moment to two communities, with a third community likely to bring in some additional land. So you've got the Makasa community, Mwabagazi community that are vested in there. They are landowners in the Munyawana, and then the Nguenya community who are keen to bring land in. And so there's a, a new generation partnership shaping there, um, anchored by and beyond um, and the commercial success of and beyond, um, supported strongly by Zuka um, and uh, Tara Jessica Getty, who's Passion, commitment, vision is steadfast over 30 years. We've got a carbon project coming together there that is going to be very exciting and I suspect will be a, a key driver of the success of both Munyuana and the development of those communities in the next few years. Still at the stage where we're just finally confirming um, carbon stock and the amount that uh, could be protected 
and working with the um, communities to start building the understanding of what carbon is, um, why it's important from a global perspective, what difference they're making, and then how they can uh, monetize that to drive the development. So the projects are, are slowly coming together. And those are the two we focused on. I have no doubt that um, year on year we will see more projects gaining traction as well as we we increasingly feel the impact of climate change. Unfortunately, you know this is this is driven by the reality of climate change and our need to actually, as a society, as a global human society, to do something about it. So there, there's a great deal of community interaction and, and, you know, from what I'm hearing you say, there's a lot of community involvement in these environmental projects. Um, and you've also mentioned the educational work that's being done there, especially around carbon. Um, from what I've seen, that that's another aspect that, you know, that you've done a lot of work on is taking the the conservation lessons that Africa Foundation has been doing and formalizing and growing them into the ECHO program. Could you speak a little bit about what this is and how it's grown over the, the recent years? Nurturing a deep understanding, passion and commitment for the, the, the management, conservation, stewardship of natural environments is at the bedrock of everything. I mean, that's the, the heart of the, the model. Um, we work with communities who are who either live in conservation landscapes or seascapes or directly require them for their development. They live adjacent to and and live off those. They're the stewards of those. Um, And so whilst we continue to focus around development issues um, with an emphasis around the notion of sustainable development, we've we've wanted to grow um, our ability to build capacity and understanding of the importance of those systems. Um, you mentioned the conservation lessons. So that has been a, a bedrock of um, Africa Foundation and particularly and beyond's relationship for many years, enabling visits from by local scholars into conservation landscapes and or snorkeling trips and seascapes to, to experience them, them so that these are not simply the, the privilege of tourists coming to those areas. Over the last four or five years, though, the team have focused on adding a a school-based model to that with emphasis on developing curriculum-aligned resources so that that we're able to become more uh, systematic about it Um, and and that we move from a -a once-a-year type environmental experience to a daily, weekly, monthly, um, termly experience. Now, that has accelerated on us very quickly. So outside of South Africa, it is one of the primary activities that our community and conservation rangers um, are starting to do. So in addition to their direct um, environmental custodianship works, whether that's growing trees, running a coral nursery, or or dealing with human-wildlife conflicts, um, elephants, they are tasked and resourced to um, spend time in local schools um, and slowly start building an awareness in those schools uh, about the importance of the natural resource around there. And then in South Africa, off the back of our Yes for Youth partnership, um, we've been able to expand it dramatically. Um, And just, in fact, over the last month, we've gone from having 
a presence in 20 schools to having a presence in over 100 schools spread across our community footprint. Um, in practice, if you were to take the Munyuana um, cluster, there's five communities there, and we have a presence now in just about every high school and every sec- uh, primary school in those communities with um, four facilitators at a primary school level and two at a high school level. And um, they are now going through a capacity building program and we will slowly build their ability and understanding so they can share that with the scholars in those schools. So it's a dramatic shift. Um, It is challenging for us because it's only partially resourced and so we're trying to figure out how to do it and do it well. But the commitment and energy and vision is there. And so I've no doubt in six months' time, we'll start seeing the impact of that with a, and hopefully this is long term. So through our YES partnership, we should be able to renew this um, small army of environmental educators every year. I mean, we're talking about um, over 250 youth placed in schools. And you just imagine that. Imagine if we could do that for 10 years. So every year there's 250 to 300 youth that are trained up as environmental educators placed in schools, working year on year on year with those scholars. Um, the 100 schools represents 50,000 scholars um, whose lives we're starting to touch. So this could be the start of a generational shift um, to the point where in 20 years' time, you, you, in those communities, you're not sure what happened, but there's just a, a deeper understanding of environmental issues. There's just, you know, fewer alien plants, less erosion, less waste, more indigenous trees. In fact, we start to see some wildlife being respected and loved and appreciated. And it's actually simply because a generation of scholars has started to come through who they just get it. It's just part of their DNA as opposed to it being somebody else's resource, you know. So one of the concepts that I've actually seen, um, you know, spoken about more and more often in the Africa Foundation context is this idea of climate resilient communities. And obviously that's driven by by the, the growing threat of, of climate change. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how would you describe that that whole concept um, and how all these things, all these elements that we've just spoken about um, play into um, the creation of those resilient communities. And, and I think another phrase that, you, that I've also heard you use is, is resilient nature as well. The starting point is the concept of resilience. Um, and, and resilience is a term that uh, is creeping into our language rapidly um, in response to the impact of climate change. So from a science perspective, um, we know that we are entering into an unknown period. Um, the, the rate of climate change, so temperature variation, rainfall variation is how it's expressed, is accelerating year on year, decade on decade. And so the, this earth that we live on is going to be very different in 50 years and 100 years' time. Um, and, and that's locked in. Unfortunately, I, I would love to be able to say, no, but if we just do something different, we can change that. The, the, it's locked. Um, we are going to see a, a, a net temperature, global temperature increase, well in excess of two degrees, which doesn't sound like a lot until you start translating that into 
you know, areas like South Africa, where it's probably translates into an average increase of five degrees, maybe even more than that. And so if you live in an area where uh, you know, an extreme temperature was 35, it'll now be well into the 40s. And if it was 40s, it's well into the 50s. It's, it's brutal. Um, the big impact there is the shift in rainfall. So the, the big impact we're going to see is if you live in an area where there is little rainfall, there'll be less. If it's an area where there's lots of rainfall, there'll be more. But the more will translate into more big events. Um, and so, you know, in South African terms, we've recently seen some big flooding events. Um, I live in KwaZulu-Natal, and so the the Durban floods are in my head, uh, you know, in my face. Now, that's not a you can't say that that's climate change, but the nature of those is what is going to be climate change. We're going to see more of those events happening more often. Okay, so we've got we've got some big change coming. Um, at a climate change language um, perspective, when when the um, the first moves were made to try and deal with this, which was close on thirty years ago now, the language was mitigation. So so guys, we've got change coming. We need to mitigate it. We need to do something about it. We need to reduce the amount of carbon going into the environment. So. Let's plant trees. Let's go with fuel-efficient cars. Let's travel less. You know, those sorts of arguments. Less electricity, more um, energy-efficient bulbs, those sorts of um, interventions that were being pushed. But what became apparent quite quickly was <laughs> the rate of mitigation was just nowhere near fast enough. And so whilst we still continue to doing, do that and uh, hopefully will accelerate it, the language of adaptation um, came into being and adaptation was, okay, we need to change the way we're living. Um, we need to respond to this. Um, and more recently, the language that has now come into the climate change language is um, risk and uh, destruction. So they talk about climate risk and climate destruction being the new normal. So in the face of that, the, the challenge that we all have is to develop and respond with resilience. We need to figure out how we are going to navigate these waters. How are we going to survive these changes um, until such stage as we actually get very serious about mitigation, stop and significantly reduce and stop the level of CO2 emissions that we have. Um, now, resilience means different things to different people. So you know, I live a comfortable middle-class life. So what that means is um, I need to think about how do I uh, survive without grid electricity? How do I survive without grid water? And that just means I invest in you know solar panels and boreholes and things like that and water storage. And that's my sort of resilience approach to it. But when you live in rural environments and you live where you rely heavily on the bounty that the land offers you, um, where you don't have the privilege that I have of being able to change <laughs> the way I generate electricity or the way I source water, um, climate change is a, 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 will be felt a lot more. And so the Society that sits at the forefront of the impact of climate change is the impoverished rural community, predominantly in developing worlds. We work in those communities. And it's those communities that still grow vegetables and eat them. 
um, most of my peers, uh, you know, have no idea how to grow a vegetable. Have never grown and eaten them. They go down to um, the local store and then only take it if it looks, you know, you know, healthy and there's no marks on it and it's the right size. They, you know, in communities, people still grow vegetables. The challenge with climate change is that a shift in temperature and water means that the vegetables that they grow today, they're not going to be able to grow in 10 to 15 years' time. And, and, and that's a dramatic change. So if you've grown up on a generation of growing your own maize and that's your staple diet, you're going to have to figure out how to grow something else that will grow under the new climate conditions that are coming to you. Um, and the, 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 so that's the first big impact. What is grown in our communities is changing. The second big impact is water. So the amount of water that our communities receive will be different. It'll be less or more. And if more, will be more extreme. And so what we are doing through our Climate Resilient Communities Program is we're starting to respond to that. Our first step is to um, encourage more local vegetable production. Okay, So re-nurture that love and passion for growing your own vegetables um, and then link to that as, and as part of that process, introducing, um, slowly introducing crops that individuals are not used to so that where we have some level of wisdom or insight that suggests that these are crops that will, will grow better in years to come. So we, we're still early days. Um, again, we've been privileged off the back of our Yes for Youth partnership that we are able to start rolling that out quite aggressively in South Africa. I think right at the moment, we, uh, I think we've just crossed the, the 70 mark. So we now have food gardens established in over 70 of the infrastructure sites that we involved in, which are, could be a, a clinic, um, OVC, uh, Orphans and Vulnerable uh, Children's Center, um, a school. Um, and we have a small army of youth from those communities learning how to grow vegetables, learning what vegetables will grow best there, growing them under water-stressed environments. Um, in parallel with that, we're starting to focus on water and water harvesting. Um, and so we're starting to, to get our, our teeth into this. Still early days. Um, again, our community conservation ranger teams will also have a focus around this. And so the starting point is to um, develop a network of ambassadors, hundreds of ambassadors that have an understanding of climate change, have an understanding of what it means locally, have an understanding of what the response is. And so they systemically start shifting awareness in the community. And then bringing some solutions into that. Um, where we're heading to from a resilience is to bring the other elements which are around electricity, so a power or energy generation and mobility. Um, and so hopefully in five years' time, our communities will serve as examples for other communities in that area. And the examples they will demonstrate are how do you grow crops that are resilient to changes in temperature and rainfall? How do you harvest and store as much water as possible when it arrives? How do you generate in, um, energy through mechanisms that are environmentally friendly, solar and wind? Um, and then how do you move around in a way that is efficient and has the lowest footprint? And notably in our communities, that should mean that you should see, hopefully, thousands of bicycles. 
Um, so it's that sort of shift, and it's a gentle shift, but at the, but it is accelerating as we talk more about this. We build capacity, and the front of that will not be the number of projects that we have. It will be this army of young community members, youth that are um, you know uh, through our touch through our network, develop their skills, capacity, and vision, and go on to become leaders in those communities. That's such an important change, you know, through such an important shift through through relatively small adjustments, but I think it's going to be absolutely crucial. Yeah, and and I'm excited by the I'm excited by the pace at which I think we can we can shift things. And and again we we're not setting out to do this in every community in Africa. That's uh, I think an important insight to always bear in mind. We have defined relationships. We work in defined landscapes and seascapes and with a, a limited number of communities across those. So we have a long-term focus. We, we have a presence in those communities for anything up to 30 years now, and we'll probably in 30 years' time still be in most of them. So we're on a journey with those communities, and, and we're taking that journey very seriously, um, and with climate change being almost the, the next piece going back 30 years ago to numeracy, you know, literacy, and health. The opportunity, though, is that these communities become, um, you know, beacons of hope um, for other communities in those areas, that they are the communities that uh, light the way. They, they literally demonstrate what is, what is possible and how to go there. Yeah. Andrew, you've spoken a lot about, about what you have going on and about so many initiatives that you have that are making a real impact and a, and a real difference. Looking ahead, is there anything else that you'd like to add about other focus areas that you've identified as you take Africa Foundation into its next decade? Sure. Uh, it's it's always hard to forecast this because it's such an exciting, rapidly moving train that we're on. But um, I mean, there's, there's no doubt if I, if I look at where our focus is at the moment. So the We've had a, a legacy focus on building, um, growing the impact of our South African footprints, which we'll continue to do. But we now are, I'm focused on East Africa at the moment and then um, Southern Africa. So the first thing is taking what we're doing in South Africa, finding ways of um, responding to community needs in Southern Africa and East Africa in a similar way from an enterprise development, from a youth development, from a climate resilience perspective, over and above our you know, ongoing emphasis around leadership and um, the sort of services foundations. That, that you will see happen. Then the, the piece that I think is going to grow is going to be our conservation-focused profile. So we've, we've, we do some really interesting stuff through Oceans Without Borders, we're privileged to support a lot of work that um, and beyond does from a formal conservation perspective, particularly in Monuana. But the opportunity to do more from a biodiversity conservation perspective is there. There's no doubt. Um, and whether that be in the landscapes themselves, so if you took Botswana, is that working in the concession areas that and beyond has and improving, helping and beyond to improve their management of that, a deepening our understanding of how those ecosystems work? Um, or is it working in the communities next to those landscapes and, and deepening their understanding and their um, commitment to the conservation of their biodiversity? I think it'll be both. Um, I'm excited about that. So it's a mix of 
um, growing our support for formal conservation, restoration, and conservation research. But at the same time, a, a strong strategic focus around community-based conservation. And so, you know, your query um, partnership with the Kimitent Trust is a good example of that. Community are concerned about the loss of their forest and what that means for the elephant, pangolin, and many, many other species that um, live in those forests. And they, they, they're taking responsibility for it, and it's our privilege to work with them to figure out how they can improve their stewardship of, those, of that biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Botswana, uh, you know, the Tsutsubeka community is, is a rural community right on the edge of the, of, um, the formal Okavango Delta, but it's a, it's a wild place. You've got people living in a wild place there. And so when, when uh, the delta dries up and the elephants go looking for water, they come into the communities area. And when they're in the communities area, they compete for resources. Um, and one of the big challenges there is that they're smashing crops. So um, Jason um, has told me, yeah, Jason will tell the story of um, meeting a, an old lady who every year she grows the crops um, and every year the elephants arrive and they destroy the crops. And she actually said to Jason, you know that last year I actually grew twice as much in the hope that the elephants would take their share and leave me some. And they took it all. Now, so what you've got there is you've got this like, you're hearing a gogo in the community saying, I, I, I like elephants. I don't have any problem with elephants. Okay. But this can't keep going because somewhere along the line, you know, they just, we've got to get that balance right. Now, there's an opportunity there to work with that community and figure out how, um, when the elephants arrive, their crops are protected. And so the elephants um, are coming and getting water and then moving on. How do you get that right? So it's those sorts of things I think will be part of the next chapter. Um, and I look forward to that, yeah. And personally, I mean, I know you've spoken a lot about the about the changes to the team and to, to the face of Africa Foundation. But personally, is there any one element that you find the most exciting as you look forward to, you know, to what's next for Africa Foundation? Yeah, so, I mean, I I am driven and inspired by our ability to provide space for talent to come through the next generation of leaders. But I think there is another piece to this, and, and that talks back to our core relationship with and beyond. So sitting at the heart of that is a a model that is relatively unusual still, surprisingly, and that is that it's it's the notion of responsible tourism. It's the notion that you can establish a tourism model that is commercially viable and that through that model, you can have a net positive environmental and social impact. The real challenge out there is that generally, actually, the tourism model is not doesn't have a net environmental net environmental positive impact or net social impact positive impact. In most environments you go to where tourism has exploded, you're just going, oh my god, I just wish we'd never brought a tourist here because what we showed them 30 years ago is no longer here. Now it's just a mess of sweaty bodies and piles of waste and you know corrupted communities. So at the heart of the the and beyond Africa Foundation partnership is a desire to get that right, is a desire to demonstrate that there is a model that can work. And, and I, I remain excited about that. I, I 
regularly enthused by the DNA that sits in and beyond around this. I'm excited to see the commercial model kicking again and seeing and beyond recover from a brutally difficult period. But where, where I think the opportunity sits, it's not, it's not about how successful and beyond an Africa foundation are. That's actually not the measure. We have a moral responsibility to be successful because we've been talking about this for a long time. We, we need to deliver the model where the opportunity sits is in how many other organizations are inspired by what and beyond an Africa foundation do and go on to replicate and in fact outperform our best efforts. And, and that, I mean, that's a real challenge because that means implicitly that we need to celebrate the successes of competitors in this, in the sector, whether those are, you know, foundations or uh, ecotourism companies. But we should actually really be focused on that. We should be f- constantly focused on doing the absolute best we can possibly do in that space. But at the same time, be looking to inspire all of our partners, all our competitors, as we think about them in those environments, to outperform us. And when they do, we should be the first organizations out there to go, oh, we just think it's amazing what you've done. Wish we could have done that. But geez, you've inspired us to do better. Now, that's a really interesting dynamic because it sort of goes against some of the <laughs> commercially driven DNA in the process where we always want to be the best. But I think that we should be aiming to do our very best so that we inspire a sector to go on to have collective impact that is transformational. And if we got that right, and we could get to a point in 30 years' time where where you see tourism, you see flourishing environments and flourishing communities, then we're in a really positive space. It's such an interesting way to look at it. And, and, you know, definitely something, it takes a lot of, courage to go out there and put out your methodology and your learnings and say, you know, we want other people to learn from this and be as successful or even more successful. But it really allows you to leverage that, you know, that collective impact so much better. It's it, it it's just a stunning concept. It really is. Yeah, and I think it's I think that's what the opportunity is out there. I mean I, I reflect if you take um Serengeti they're doing some really interesting work around the Greater Serengeti. Now, we have, uh, through our partnership, you know, four lodges, four lodge operations, maybe five, and we have a presence in around the Serengeti, somewhere around seven, eight communities. Okay. The Serengeti has 10 times that number of lodges operating and 10 times that number of communities. So our opportunity is to have... To set and uh, to continue setting the standard. Bearing in mind, the minute we set the standard, it becomes old. <laughs> so <laughs> next year, you've got to do better, right? And whether that is from the impact of the lodge, the identification of local talent and development of that talent, the number of schools that we're able to invest in, it doesn't matter. Okay, we 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 cannot, we we will never be the definitive impact player across the Greater Serengeti. We just We're not setting out to do that. But what we should be is a a force of change, the catalysm, the the benchmark, so that the authorities and the communities are going, guys, 
we want you to be like them and we want you to be better than them. That's the, and you get that right. But I do think a key piece in there is that we, we have to find it within ourselves to be competitive without being um, dismissive and to embrace other success and acknowledge and recognize it. And that's the piece that we have to find within ourselves. And, and that's tough. Um, but I, I look forward to that journey. And I think that that's, that probably is the impact. That will be the measure of the impact success of our partnership of Africa Foundation's trajectory and our partnership with and beyond in the next 30 years. Andrew, it certainly sounds as though it's an incredibly, incredibly exciting time for Africa Foundation and for everybody connected with it. And thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into what's happening behind the scenes and, and what you've got planned. Oh, my privilege. Um, yeah, and uh, it, is, it is an exciting time. It has its challenges, but that's, uh, that's what keeps us up at night and we get excited again in the morning when we see the impact that we're having. So I, I think it's a fantastic space to be in and it talks back to... It's our collective privilege to be here and we need to make sure that we use that privilege to have real impact. That's a, that's a great thought to end on. Thank you again. So thank you so much, Andrew. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.